Bible says in the very first verse, the very first chapter, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and so it was. God called the expanse heaven, or the sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. God saw that it was good. God said, I love it, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind on earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. At the end of February, we ended a series of lessons from the book of 1 John that we began in the first week of August 2022. I don't know how many Sundays that is, but um, it took us that long to cover those four chapters. Um, and then from the month of March and part of April, I talked about some things uh, that I believe should be the core values of who we are, say Family Christian Center, core values that are my core values, because I believe they're biblical core values. Before our study in, in 1 John, we took our time to go through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And I didn't go back to find out how many months it took us to go through the 16 chapters of the book of Romans. Before that, we were in the book of Hebrews. Um, so we spent a great deal of time in the past couple of years looking at letters or epistles in the New Testament. Um, as we approached Easter, and, and uh, I knew that I needed to find the leading of the Lord for the next series of messages, and I'm one who likes to teach the Scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so you end up with the whole context of a book and understanding it, hopefully understanding it. And uh, I began to pray and ask the Lord for leading and direction. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I really felt impressed that 
um, in order to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God, that we needed to go back into the Old Testament for a little while and uh, look at the Old Testament scriptures. Some people believe that because we are in the New Testament era that we do away with the Old Testament, we don't need it. But the reality is, the foundation for everything we believe is found in the first five books of the Bible. Every doctrine that we believe is found in the first five books. Jesus is found in the first chapter. So, um, so as I prayed about it, um, I was being drawn to the very first book of the Bible. And uh, two weeks ago, um, after the 11 o'clock service, um, I said goodbye and went out the side door because we had to catch a plane in Portland, and you never know what's going to happen between here and PDX. And my wife does not have TSA, pre, so we don't know how long it's going to take her to go through. So we had to get there. Uh, the plane boarded at 3 o'clock, and so we needed to just jet out of here because the preacher preached a long time. Um, and... Uh, and as we were um, waiting, we got there with a few minutes to spare, which is unusual for us. Thank the Lord. And I, I opened up my Bible, uh, my Bible app on my, on my phone, and I felt impressed that I just want to download some chapters. When I say open, I didn't need to download. I just needed to open them because when I end up on the plane without my cell service, some of those things are in the cloud and not the cloud outside the plane, but you understand what I'm talking about. So I downloaded, or I opened up several chapters and left from there in the book of Genesis. And I read those chapters, as many as I'd opened up, on the way to Houston, Texas for a conference. Conference was great. We got there on Sunday, well actually Monday morning, about 1 a.m. we picked up our rental car because we lost two hours going. Um, conference was great. When Monday went, Tuesday and Wednesday, ended on Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon. And uh, for this year, we decided we were gonna take just three or four days uh, just for ourselves because life has been busy um, for us the past several months for several different reasons. You, you don't need to know all of that, but we just took a few days. Uh, my wife, somehow leaked the information that we were staying over. And she even made the commitment that we would be back in that church in Woodlands for Sunday morning service, which is okay. Great church, um, power of God moving there, a great revival, been lasting for about three years. And so uh, I was okay with going to church. But on Saturday, I got a call from Stu Johnson, who's the executive administrator for Grace International, the headquarters office there. And he said, Bob, I wanted to let you know that we have a Bible study tomorrow morning during the first service at 9 o'clock with Dr. Sam Thomas. Sam Thomas is from India. He's George Savanique Comneal's right-hand man here in the United States. George is now 70-something, and he's trying to make sure that he's got somebody to cover his bases when Jesus calls him home. And... uh, Sam is one of, one of the most brilliant men that you'll ever meet and an incredible teacher. And Stu says, 
I just wanted you to know that he's starting a study. He started it last week. He's just, just in part two. And we will meet you there in class. Now, I don't know how many of you believe that when God leads you, he gives you a confirmation. Do you know what he was teaching them when I got to Sunday school class? He was in the second lesson of Genesis. Going through, he was going to go through the Old Testament survey, but he was right there in Genesis. And so we are landing there. I don't know how long until the Lord moves me on or we get the book done. Uh, but we're going to start right here. I could have just jumped in and told you everything, or without telling you anything, and just jumped into the message. But I, I just felt compelled to let you know why I'm here why we are doing this, and that the Lord has something to say to you from the very first book in the Bible. In the beginning. I have read that it's the custom in ancient times to name a book by its opening words. In this case, that is exactly why the first book of the Bible is Genesis. Genesis is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word resheath which means beginning. So in the beginning, those first three words, you could put Genesis, and that's what they called the title of it. In the beginning. It's called the book of beginnings. In the beginning. In the beginning, I want you to understand, refers to a specific moment when what we call time began. But let me make this very clear. It was not the beginning of everything. Now some of you understand where I'm going. Some of you are going, what? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the book of beginnings, we find most every important doctrine that appears in the Bible. This is the beginning of the doctrine of God, who God is. We get the first revelation of God and his character, his nature, his name. In Genesis, we begin to see who he is and this declaration. When it says in the beginning God, that means God was already there. God has existed forever. God, has, God is eternal. God always was, God always is, God always will be. The same yesterday, today, and forever. God has no beginning, no ending. So he was there at that beginning because he already was. Now please don't try to comprehend that <laughs> Hebrews 11:1 1 says now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen the scripture in several places and there's numerous places and I'm not going to share all of them but there's numerous places where God is referred to as the everlasting God Psalms 90, verse 2. Moses wrote this song. Psalms 90, verse 2. 
Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Abraham, in Genesis 21, verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Moses writing and speaking to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 33 in his farewell address, the eternal God, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. In the beginning, God. But God is already there in sublime glory forever. No beginning, no ending, eternal. Genesis was written by Moses around 1430 B.C. Take or plus or minus. Scholars have different opinions on how they go backwards on that calendar and extrapolate those dates from other literature. It was written by Moses along with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Pentateuch. It was written... We believe after Moses left Egypt with the children of Israel in those 40 years of wandering in the desert, he began writing it when they went to Mount Sinai where they hung out for a couple of years after they left um, the land of Egypt. I want to remind you that when Moses brought them out of Egypt, the Israelites had been in Egypt now for 400 years. Many of you remember the story, and we'll, re we'll read more of the story later on in Genesis, where there was a famine in, in Canaan where Jacob and his 12 sons were living, and uh, they discovered that there was food in Egypt. And you remember how his brothers had sold Joseph to traveling traders, and he ended up in Egypt. He ended up being the man in charge of all the food for Egypt, and uh, so... When all of that took place, they moved to Goshen in Egypt. Seven of them come. As time goes on, Joseph dies. The Pharaoh that knows Joseph dies, and the next generation dies. And by about the third or fourth next Pharaoh, um, by this time, now the Israelites have multiplied by thousands, by thousands, and... The Egyptians are afraid that they're going to rise up in insurrection and overthrow them and take the kingdom. So to uh, take away their desire, they make them slaves. And they're making bricks with straw and, and mud. Uh, and for 400 years, God had already prophesied. We'll get to that later on. God had already told Abraham they're going to be in a foreign land for 400 years. But they're crying out for God to, to, to deliver them. The reason I bring that up is because they were living in a land for those four centuries where the people were believed in pantheism. They had all kinds of gods. Everything was a god. Um, they created gods in their own minds. And Moses was moved by the Spirit of God 
to write and to speak to the Israelite people about who Yahweh is, who God is. And that the idols that the Egyptians were worshiping were nothing more than a man-made object. In their polytheism, numerous gods, they believed in mythology. And the ruling powers in Egypt taught elaborate myths of love affairs between these gods and the reproduction among these gods and the gods being at war with one another and marking out the heavens and the earth in their places of rulership. And every year, there was a time when the Egyptian priest would mime the myths of those supposed gods, hoping that their reenactment would produce some kind of life. And their efforts did indeed create some effect. There were Israeli people who acquired some of the Egyptian idols. And they did indeed hope that those gods that they had chosen to put in their knapsack or whatever really had some power that would come through with some kind of blessing. So Moses is moved to write Genesis in a manner that would forever establish a true understanding about God, the God, and about the universe and humanity. In the beginning, God. God is the dominant theme of the first two chapters. If I have counted right, that word God appears 35 times in the first two chapters. He is wanting these people to know who God is. And in the Hebrew, this particular name for God is Elohim. Elohim. It's interesting because Elohim is a plural word. It's not singular. In the Hebrew, it is plural. This name is used for God about 2,300 times in the Bible. Elohim. Elohim. Here we get the first glimpse of the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. When we read on in verse 1, in the beginning God created, created is singular in the Hebrew. Inferring the being one God created, yet that one God is plural. That one God is three persons. Elohim describes God in the unity of his divine personality and power. It describes God in the unity of his divine personality and power. You remember Jesus in John 17 was praying, Father, make them one as we are one. Elohim has that inference. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Now we know that, that Moses, when he gives uh, the Shema, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He's one. But when you read in, 
In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God with three persons. Again, don't try to overthink that. By faith, we take that. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. As Paul ends that chapter... He said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So by the fourth word in the scripture, we are introduced to the concept that there's three persons in God, the Holy Trinity, but they are absolutely one. Elohim indicates that God is the majestic ruler. And under such a name, we have the idea of omnipotence or creative and governing power. It indicates that God is the majestic ruler, the ruler over everything. And under such a name, we have the idea of omnipotence or creative and governing power. He is establishing a theological foundation for the people of Israel to live by as they move towards the promised land, who God is. In the beginning, God created. He wants them to know, contrary to what the Egyptians said, God is the creator. God is the creator. God created. Moses wanted the Israelites to know that before God acted, before God spoke, that nothing existed. That word created has this connotation. God created everything out of nothing. Now we have our time of comprehending that. Whenever we're going to create something, we go find raw material to put everything together. If you're going to cook a meal, you're going to build a house, anything you do, you go find material and put it together. God did not come and restore material that had been destroyed by some force and needed to be resurrected. He did not come and repurpose something that existed. That happens later in the 7th and 8th chapter. In the beginning, God came from nowhere, stood on nothing, and without anything, made everything. By speaking it into existence. This word created is only used in connection with God in the scripture. Only God creates. When it said God created the heavens and the earth, it means that everything there is, every speck of dust in the millions of galaxies in the heavens, every atom, every microscopic neutron, electron, quark, lepton, every, whatever else they call those things now inside of, I mean, they keep finding more microscopic things inside of those atoms that you can't see in the first place. God created it all. And the scripture says it was the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
the New Testament speaking that Jesus was part of creations and all things were created by him. All things. That's why we started this morning with, Oh Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder consider all the works or all the worlds depend on which hymn book you look at, you've made. How great thou art. How great thou art. We're not going to run through all seven days today, but I want you to point out this fact. That on each day of creation, what God created spoke against an Egyptian deity that they created. Now remember the ten plagues? Every one of those ten plagues spoke against one of the Egyptian deities to show that Yahweh, Jehovah, was greater than anything they'd created. And when, when Moses is inspired to write what had taken place a long time before he was born, God inspired this. On day one, let there be light. The Egyptians believed in the God of light and darkness. There was a God of light. God created light and darkness. He dismisses those gods without even saying their names. Day two, it's the God of the sky and the sea. When God divides and makes the sky, makes the sea around this planet, they believed in the gods of the sky, and they believed in the gods of the sea. Day three, the earth gods, the god of, of, of the, or the ground and the gods of vegetation. They had god of the soil, and they had gods of the vegetation. Day four, it's the, the sun and moon and star gods. One of the prominent gods in Egypt was Ra, the sun god. But God created the sun. And everybody said? Amen. Day five and six counter the pagan notion that there were animals that had been given divine power. That some animals were sacred. You go to India... And the cow, to them, is a deity. It's a sacred thing. But God created all the animals. And on the sixth day, God created man. Now the Egyptians, the Romans, they believed that human beings were deity. That somehow they were divine creatures born because of the gods messing around in the heavens. God created man. Humanity. People are not gods. We are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of Elohim. As Moses is inspired to write this part of the history of the world, he's laying the foundation for what God is going to say in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The first commandment. No other gods. In the New Testament, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, 
The way to live is seek first the kingdom of God. It's all about God. We are not unlike the Israelites. We need to be reminded on an ongoing basis. It's all about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because there are so many things in this world, legitimate good things, that will distract us, grab our attention, and if we're not careful, they'll grab our heart to the point that they become more important than our relationship to the living God. The key to a blessed life is make much of God each and every day. We're going to do a little more of doing that in song for a couple minutes. We're not at the end. You're preaching with me today, okay? For you, O Lord, our God, above all the earth, you are exalted far above all God. For you, O Worthy 
of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, to you are all things. You deserve the glory. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, to you are all things. You deserve the glory. In heaven today, all the saints and angels, they bow before your throne. All the elders cast their crowns before the Lamb of God and sing, you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, to you are all things, you deserve the glory. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, to you are all things, you deserve the glory. Father, we want to give you the glory today. Yes, Lord. We want to exalt your name. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we want to make sure that we have kept you on the throne of our heart and our life. Lord, be the Lord of every part of who we are and what we are. Because you are the great and mighty God, the creator of everything, the one who holds it all together, including our lives. So let we just submit ourselves to you again today in praise and worship. For you alone are worthy. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. As we dive into the book of Genesis in these coming weeks, I think many people are going to be surprised to learn Genesis is about grace. Genesis is about grace. The first 11 chapters, which give us the primeval history or the earliest universal history before it starts in chapter 12 and God begins to deal with a certain family that becomes a certain nation to reveal himself. But there are five stories. There's the fall of Adam and Eve. There's Cain murdering Abel. There's the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. There's Noah and the flood. And then the Tower of Babel after the flood. All the stories have a very similar pattern in this. First, there is sin. Sin that is described. Sin that is described. Eve partook of the fruit and gave it to Adam and he chose to eat it. Cain decided to kill Abel. All societies sinned to the point that God said, I must start over. Sin takes place, then God comes and God speaks. God speaks into the situation. God announces the penalty for the sin. 
But God also comes with grace. God brings grace to, to the situation to ease the misery due to the sin. And as we go through it, I'll expound on that more, but not today. But there's God comes with grace. And then if people do not respond to the grace and the voice of God, there's punishment that comes. God punishes sin. Then and now. God's grace. Adam and Eve were punished. But in grace, God withheld that death penalty. They didn't physically die for another 900 years. Cain was banished from his family for murdering his brother. And, and because he was afraid somebody would take vengeance on him, God gave him grace by putting a mark on him that warned everybody else, do not touch this man or God will take vengeance seven times over on you. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's what it says. And humanity was given grace in the fact that for 120 years, from the time he started that building that ark, there was a message that was going forth. There's a flood coming. There's a flood coming. They had a chance to repent. When we get to chapters 12 through 50 in the story of the patriarchs, over and over you're going to see grace in action. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and every one of them sinned against God. But God did not renege on the promises that he made. He remained faithful. Faithful. Paul would write centuries later in, in the book of Romans, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. When we get to the story of Abraham, we are going to understand this. We come to understand that we are saved solely by faith in the grace of God. In the story of Abraham, we come to understand that we are saved solely by faith in the grace of God. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Several places in the New Testament that statement is made. It was his faith. That's why he's called the father of faith. The doctrine of salvation is introduced in the book of beginnings. Anybody here experience God's grace? If you can stand, I invite you to stand. If you, we're not done. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. 
How precious did that grace appear The hour I first believed My chains are gone I've been set free My God, my Savior has ransomed me And like a flood His mercy reigned Unending love, amazing grace. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be. As long as life endures, my chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine, will be forever mine. You are forever. Verse 2, we're rolling right along. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now we get a, you know, just kind of a summary account of that creation. There's a whole lot that we don't know about, lots of questions Some people try to answer them. I'm going to tell you, talk to him when you get there. Check out the DVD or whatever they'll have uh, and watch the video. Um, But the picture I get from verse 1 and 2 is that God, by his spoken word, created material to begin the process of building out his vision. One writer likens it to a a potter who takes the clay, works it, and then puts it on the wheel and begins to spin the wheel and begins to shape that lump of clay into what he sees in his head. When it said the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, 
Moses is writing what had come into existence on that point in time, day one. It was not really inhabitable. It was without form and void. He's emphasizing the emptiness of what was there. And he said that there was darkness over the face of the deep. Now, for us, darkness is, we can't penetrate it. When it's dark, we can't see a thing. But did you know that darkness is transparent to God? Psalms 139, verse 12. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. An interesting concept that I never really spent time thinking about. Over that darkness, there's this incredible beauty hovering. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God hovering. If you look up that word spirit in the Hebrew dictionary in your Strong's Concordance, you'll see that one of the ways that that can be translated is breath. The breath of God hovering like a mother bird over the nest where her young are open mouth waiting to be fed. The Spirit of God. The breath of God was about to be released to create something beautiful out of raw material that was without form and empty. As I was reading these thoughts, um, the last several days, the chorus that we sang in my youth came to my mind, and I looked for the music. It's so old. I couldn't even find it in all the hymn books that I have in my office, and the online, nobody. I could find the lyrics and who, who wrote it. But we used to sing, let it breathe on me. Let it breathe on me. Let the breath of God now breathe on me. Oh, let it breathe on me. Let it breathe on me. Let the breath of God. There's something that happens when the Lord breathes on us. He breathed into Adam and became a living soul. Jesus breathed on the disciples after the resurrection and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, breathe on us in this house. Amen? Amen. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. I want you to think about something right here. On what day was the sun and the moon created? We didn't read that far. If you get down to verse 14, 15, it's on the fourth day that God said, let there be a light in the heavens and for, for the day and a, and a light for the night. In the fourth day, 
He created the sun and the moon. The sun in the midst of our solar system. The moon to revolve around the earth. I mean, the solar system, that's a whole other ball of wax. But he, So, the first three days of creation, there was light, and God said it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day and the dark night. The creation begins with light, but no sun. The creation begins with light and no sun. Do you know how this is all going to end? In Revelation 21, or 22, verse 5. And night will be no more. There will be no need of light or lamp or sun. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Creation started with no sun. The sun will be gone. Verse 1, or verse 6. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, there was morning, the second day. If I understand what Moses is writing, before God was this horizontal mass of, that looked like water, because it was water. And what he did is, he divided the water in two, left water to surround this planet of Earth that he's creating, and then he raises water into the atmosphere, and it becomes the sky, heaven. In naming the day and night and the sky, God was dismissing the Egyptian gods of the sky and the sea. He didn't say anything against them, but by saying God named them, Moses was saying to the Israelite people that he's writing this for, preaching this to, it is God who created the sea. It's God who created the sky. God was showing his sovereignty over all creation as he spoke through Moses. His sovereignty over all creation. He created it all. He created it all. And after I made the notes and put them on there, I put in here, take a beat because now I have a verse and it won't fit on that screen. Reading on, verse 9. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruits, trees bearing fruit, in which their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. If you happen to believe in the Big Bang Theory or the Darwinism, There was 
more and more scientists are saying there has to have been a master designer. Because there's no way these things could have happened in happenstance. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there's their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. At the end of day three, the earth is ready to animate, is ready to put mobile life. All the fixed forms are in place. Seas, rivers, mountains, everything. What was once without form and void is now a place where life can live. There's vegetation for the animals and human beings to eat. God brought order out of chaos by his word. God brought order out of chaos by his word. This is a brief summary of those first three days, the world's first three days. I want to talk for a few minutes what that means to you and me. Number one, Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. In John 8, the Jews had just concluded the feast, that one of the feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, that God had, had instructed them to have every year to remind them of the glory of God that led them in the wilderness for 40 years. They were led by that cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the Shekinah glory of God, God's literal presence. And, and part of that celebration, there were some things that they had to do with water, and there were things that they did with these huge candelabras, big torches in the main courtyards of the temple. And they would light these at the beginning, these candelabras, at the beginning of the feast. And they had this liturgy that they went through when the feast, the final day, the great day of the feast, came to an end. And they would snuff out those, those lights. It was on that day that when they began to snuff out the lights, that Jesus stood up and with a loud voice said, let anyone who thirsts come to me and I will give you living water to drink. And then a little later he said these words, in verse 12 of chapter 8, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. We read in Genesis 1 and Revelation 22, there's a light but no sun in the sky. We are reading that Jesus is the source of light that dispels all darkness. John said in Revelation 21, verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The second thing I want you to see is this, that, that Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator along with God the Father and God the Spirit. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, that same beginning, was the Word. The Word was with God. He was already there. He wasn't created in the beginning. He was there. And the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Nothing was made without Jesus. Nothing. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Through whom are all... Jesus, God the Father, they work together to create everything. And we talked about the Holy Spirit hovering over it. All three involved. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. All things. How much is all? I mean, it's not a trick question. All things. All things. Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. King James said, and for your pleasure they were created. Number three, Jesus brings order. Christ the light, Christ the creator is here this morning by the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring order into chaos. Jesus is the light to walk into your light today to dispel darkness. Darkness that grips your mind and your soul. Says, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. The same power that spoke and created billions of stars in the heavens, the heavens that are ever expanding beyond the ability of mankind to measure. Every time they think they're going to, it just keeps on going and going. The same power that created your body and all the systems that work in it and, and, and work in harmony, that person is here this morning to bring about order in your chaos. If we were going to take all day, we could walk around this room and we could talk about your life story and my life story where there were moments that life, our life was in chaos, total darkness. There are people in this church family who at one point in time were addicted to drugs or alcohol to the point that they're about to lose their life. But they had an encounter with Jesus, the light, Jesus, the creator, the one who can restore order in the midst of chaos. I didn't ask permission to tell any stories on anybody, so I'm not going to. But there's lots of stories in this family. There are stories of marriages that from a human point of view had come to an end. 
But Jesus came into the situation. He was invited into the situation. And marriages were restored. I could give you names, but I won't. The power of God. The power of God to come into chaos and bring order. I believe Jesus is here this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are here moving in armies. I worship you. I worship you. You are here working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. You are here moving in armies. I worship you. I worship you. You are here working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. You are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are here touching every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are here healing every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are here turning lives around. I worship you. I worship you. You are here mending every heart. I worship you. I worship you. Waymaker, 